you want, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 21. We have a, we're in the middle of a pretty long section. Now, I talked to Cannon about it as last week was kind of, I said, should I try to tackle the whole section or break it into parts? And Cannon said, look, just go ahead and try to tackle it. And so I tried to write this whole thing, and I realized today that um, we would be here until midnight. <laughs> and so I've had mercy. We'll do, what we're going to do is we're looking at an exchange that happens between Jesus and the Pharisees, well, the chief priests and elders, so these Jewish leaders. Uh, it happens in Matthew 21, and after Jesus exchanged with them, during the exchange you'll find out that they reject Jesus and he rejects them, and then he explains this rejection in a series of three parables. Right? And so really all of this is one big idea that's going on that says Jesus saying, I'm rejecting these religious leaders. Um, but because we want to go uh, home at a reasonable time, we're going to look at half of that. We'll look at just the first exchange and the first parable, and we'll see what is going on that's causing Jesus to reject these men. Before we do, before we actually get into the passage, let me ask you a question. Do you think that it's possible that a man could be a pastor and not be a Christian? Right? Do you think it's possible that... Um, let me ask you another thing. Is it possible that you could come to church every single week, including Sunday nights, which are supposed to give you extra credit? You could even come on Sunday nights but not be saved? Is that possible? And Wednesday night. Wednesday night is understandable, right? People want to come and listen to Eddie. Eddie's fun to listen to. Come in here if you're willing to suffer for the gospel and not be saved. That's right. <laughs> um, is it possible that some of the most moral and the nicest people you know are headed for an eternity in hell, separated from God for all eternity. This passage is going to say, not only is it possible, we're going to look at, that's a reality for people. Um, but I, there was a time when I was preparing it to actually be a pastor, to do what I'm doing right now. I read a book that the introduction, of the first part of the book, just shocked me and scared me. It was a book written in, or in 1829. A guy named Richard Baxter wrote The Reformed Pastor. Basically, it was a book that was written as an introduction to this pastor's conference. He had a bunch of people in England all come together, and he was going to talk to them about the job of a pastor. And uh, the first chapter, I mean, it just it was scary to me. Let me read to you some of it, just so you can get a sense of the emotion that I felt when I read it. He says, this is Richard Baxter, See that the work of saving grace be thoroughly wrought in your own soul. Take heed to yourself, lest you be void of that saving grace of God, which you offer to others. And be strangers to the effectual working of the gospel which you preach. And lest, while you proclaim to the world the necessity of a Savior, your own heart should neglect him. And you should miss of an interest in him and his saving benefits. Take heed to yourselves lest you perish while you call upon others to take heed of perishing. 
unless you famish yourselves while you prepare food for them. Can any reasonable man imagine that God would save men for offering salvation to others while they refuse it themselves? And for telling others those truths which they themselves neglect and abuse. He says, many a tailor goes in rags that maketh costly clothes for others. And many a cook scarcely licks his fingers when he hath dressed for others the most costly dishes. He says, believe it, brethren, God never saved a man for being a preacher, nor because he was an able preacher, but because he was a justified, sanctified man and consequently faithful in his master's work. Alas, it is the common danger and calamity of the church to have unregenerate and inexperienced pastors and to have so many men become preachers before they are Christians who were sanctified by dedication to the altar as the priests of God, before they're sanctified by a hearty dedication to the disciples of Christ. And so to worship, they worship an unknown God, and they preach an unknown Christ, and they pray through an unknown spirit to recommend a state of holiness and communion with God and glory and happiness, which are all unknown and like to be unknown to them forever. He is like to be but a heartless preacher that has not the Christ and grace that he preacheth in his heart. Oh, that all our students in our universities would well consider this. What a poor business it is uh, to themselves to spend their time acquiring in some little knowledge of the works of God and of some of those names which divided uh, the tongues of uh, nations that have opposed in them and not to know God himself. Right? What a poor business to spend time knowing about God and not to know God or to be acquainted with the one that, re- that one renewing work which should make them happy. And I think that is one of the scariest introductions of any book I've ever read. And the reason I think it's a fit introduction tonight is because we're about to look at religious professionals. Right? These are chief priests and scribes, but a chief pri- the modern equivalent to a chief priest and scribe would be pastors and seminary professors. These are religious professionals who spend their career, their life work, telling people about God. But when he shows up, they miss him, and he rejects them forever. So the answer, anyway, to the question, is it possible for a pastor to stand up here where I'm standing right now and preach to you and miss Christ? It is possible. And so what I want to do today is look at what is it that caused these religious professionals to miss the Christ that they were called to serve. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, and I'm going to read through verse 32. When he entered the temple complex, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Where did John's baptism come from? From heaven or from men? They begin to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, 
he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the crowds because everyone thought John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. He, the son, answered, I don't want to. Yet later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? The first, they said. And Jesus said to them, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we open your word together this evening, I pray that you will open our hearts to understand. Give us uh, the ability to understand this interchange, uh, just a historical interchange, something that really happened between uh, you, your son, and these people, but also help us understand the spiritual (laughs) implications, how you intend for this to affect our hearts and our lives. Pray that you will open up... um, to our eyes, our own sinfulness, what we need to repent of, our own hypocrisy. Um, Just prepare us to receive your spirit through your word. In your name I pray, amen. The big idea I want to try to communicate tonight is that if we do not accept the authority of Jesus and submit to him as our king, then he will reject us, right? Just like the scribes and the, Pharise- and, and the chief priests, if we do not accept the authority of Jesus, if we reject him, he will reject us. I think this first section, Jesus' interaction with these men, is a picture of not only them rejecting him, but why. What is it that causes them to reject them. So what I want to do is just walk through this first section with you guys, and let's just start together in verse 23 and see what's going on. Right away, Jesus has entered the temple complex, and so now you need to do a little bit of refreshing yourself, and remember, he just came from the temple, right? So this is the week of his crucifixion, the week before. He starts it in the temple, and he clears the temple, Right? He kicks out the money changers. He kicks out all the sacrifices. The, he basically shuts down the temple for the day and spends the day healing people and ministering to people. He just shut it down, just shut the temple down. He leaves for the night, and now he's back in the temple. And here come the chief priests and the scribes, and they're asking him, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, what gives you the right to shut this thing down? What authority do you have to come into the temple of God and shut it down? And I think this is kind of a trick question here, right? It's a trap. Maybe not a trick question. It's more of a trap. They're trying to get Jesus to say one of two things. Either, well, I didn't really have the authority to do this. I just did it. Or to say, I have more authority than you guys. 
because what they know is that Jesus has walked in to the chief religious leaders of Jerusalem, and he has usurped them and shut them out of their place. And so they think either Jesus is going to claim to be a rash, wild man who does things that he later regrets, or a wildly arrogant carpenter from Galilee who can walk into the temple and say, I have more authority in this place than you guys who have given your life to service here. And so which one are you, Jesus? Are you a rash, wild man? Are you a wildly arrogant guy who thinks you run this place? And so he's in a bit of a trap. Um, one, of, one of the commentaries I read this week was J.C. Ryle. He's another old preacher. In his commentary, he said, uh, he said, what a masterful response. Let us pray that God will give us the wisdom to respond like Jesus. Because what Jesus does is he, instead of answering them directly, asks them a question that both answers them and keeps them from getting off into this debate over who has more authority and who has more power. Jesus answers their question with a question. And that becomes far more poignant than him getting into some debate with them. <clears throat> he asks them, well, where do you think John's Baptist come from? Heaven or from men? So let me explain to you why I think this is a uh, fascinating answer. You know, before I do, let me stop real quick. I just want to point out something. We've used the word authority in here a lot. And I just want to point out that word is used in this passage alone four times. Authority is the central word going on. It's a central word to John, but it's also a central word to this passage. And I want you to understand that this whole thing is going to be wrapped up over around authority. I think the reason John wants us to know that authority matters here is because Jesus is coming not only as our Savior, but as our King. Right, so John is writing a letter about, or writing a gospel about how Jesus can save us from our sins. But he wants us to know that this isn't something that is just, if you believe it, it's a get out of jail free card, and you don't have to worry about your relationship with Jesus. He says, Jesus is coming as your Savior and your King. If you're, uh, if you're a reader, you might enjoy a book. I read this. Uh, in college, it was, a, I guess after college, it was a book by John MacArthur named, uh, the title of it was The Gospel According to Jesus. And it was this challenging book to me because MacArthur pointed out that increasingly in our American Christianity, and, and he was talking about from pastors and from professors, that there had become this belief that if we pray a prayer at any point in our life, we will be saved regardless of how we live from that day on. He called it easy believism in that book. Other people have called it gospel light. An idea that salvation has more to do with a formula of what I say than a life that's changed and brought into submission to God. John MacArthur in that book argues this is completely wrong-headed thinking. But that's what Matthew is getting at right here, that Jesus has come with an authority to walk into the temple. And these people are questioning that authority. And so the central thing that's going on in this text is asking, how are we going to understand the authority of this man, understanding that we need to come under that authority? But they're questioning that. So these these. Chief priests and elders are questioning Jesus' authority. And Jesus says, well, let me ask you a question. 
where did John get his authority? Right? Where did John get his authority to baptize people? Was it from heaven or from earth? And this is an interesting question to chief priests and scribes. Because chief priests and scribes generally think of their authority as being derived from other scholars. Right? This is the scholarly world of Jewish thinking. And so the way that you proved your authority is by quoting other scholars. Um, Sherry, where's Sherry? Same, that's what Joel's doing in y'all's class, right? Sherry talked about how many quotes she's putting in her paper. In the scholarly world, you put quotes from other scholars to prove I'm not the only one. I have authority that I'm gathering from these other people, right? But that's not what John does, right? When John's out in the Jordan River baptizing people, he's not quoting the other rabbis that are around, There's no derived authority coming from John. So where is it coming from? Well, there's two options. One is he's made it up. Or two is it's coming from God. But everybody around there believed this man is a prophet. They believe God can speak through somebody and a person can have an authority that is not attached whatsoever to their intellectual uh, rigor how many people they cite, how many people agree with them, their rightness comes completely because they are tied to who God is, right, and what God is saying. I have authority, not because I speak the words of smart people, but because I speak the words of God. So that's what he's asking. Do you think John really is a prophet? Now, this is an incredibly smart question, Because actually, regardless of what they think about John, the very fact that people believe that prophets exist is proof that God isn't dependent on scholars to get his ideas out, right? God isn't dependent on you getting every book in your hand. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't use them, but the Jewish world, and we believe that God speaks through men in a way that's reliable way more than even scholarly thought. That's why, just on a side, that's why it's more important for you to read your Bible than your newspaper, or journals, right? If you read some scholarly journal about what God thinks or a textbook or something like that, about what God is like and what God thinks, there might be some really helpful things in there. But we also know sometimes really smart men think really stupid things, right? Not everything that a smart person says is something that we should buy into and take wholesale. Not so with Scripture, Every word of Scripture is God-breathed, and every word of Scripture is profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. Every single word of the Bible is profitable. And why is that? Because it comes from the mouth of God through the prophet of God, a spokesperson who relays God's word in a way that is utterly and completely reliable. The chief priests and scribes could not deny that God speaks through prophets. And so once Jesus appeals to the idea that God uses prophets, all of a sudden he's pointing out there are people who trump your authority, chief priests and scribes. So he's kind of got them. I don't have to submit to you to be right with God. If God is speaking through a prophet, then it trumps even all of your scholarly ideas and thoughts. But John's prophet prophetic word was even more particular. So Jesus wins the argument by pointing out 
John's a prophet, but it's John's prophetic message that really seals the deal. Because think back to what John says. John says, Jesus is God. Right? This prophet who everybody believes, John's saying this guy is the one we're supposed to listen to. This is the one, not only that we're talking about, he's the one that's supplying the message. Right? Jesus is God's word. So that's why when John baptizes Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down and speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he says, so listen to him. He's your authority. So Jesus has basically answered the, Pharisee, or the scribes and chief priests' question. By what authority do you come in and shut down the temple? Jesus is the same authority by which John baptizes people, a prophetic word in which God can speak through people, but that prophetic word which also says, I myself am God, listen to me. Jesus is, this is a, a gotcha moment for Jesus. It's also a place where Jesus has said to them, now what are you going to say about that? How are you going to respond? And when it's time for them to respond, you find out what's really going on in their hearts. Because they say, rather than responding, we got a problem here. We don't want to commit that Jesus is a prophet, nor do we want to commit ourselves that Jesus isn't a prophet. If we say Jesus is a prophet, uh, or John's a prophet and Jesus is a prophet, if we say that, everybody will like us, but then we've undercut our, what we're trying to say. But if we don't, then everybody's upset with us because they all believe John's a prophet. So they just say, we don't know, and they take this non-committal position. And the big point that I want to make now is that it is impossible to not commit. It's impossible to be agnostic here. Jesus says, your not commitment is a commitment against my authority, and therefore Jesus rejects them altogether. If you won't answer me, I won't answer you. Your I don't know doesn't count. Let me, let me flesh this out a little bit more. My main th- thing I want you to gather from this is it is impossible for you to be an agnostic in terms of the authority of Jesus Christ. So as we back up this first passage and just remember what's happened, Jesus has come in. He's, de- he's declared himself to have so much authority that he can shut down the temple. The chief priest says, whoa, where do you get this authority? He says, it comes from God, right? It comes, I'm a prophet. And they have to make a decision, and their decision is, I don't know, right? We don't know. We don't know if you're right or wrong here. And Jesus responds to them with, that is, that answer is officially or essentially a no answer. And the idea here is that you cannot say to someone who says, I am your authority, to say, I don't know if you're, not my, if you're my authority. At that point, you say, you're essentially saying, no, you're not my authority. In other words, Jesus isn't up for an election here, right? This isn't a vote to see what happens. It's not you vote for me, you vote against me, or you abstain, right? You're either for me or against me. There is no middle ground. There is no agnostic. I keep using the word agnostic. Are you familiar with that term? An atheist is somebody who believes God does not exist, right? A theist, Christians are theists, we believe God does exist. An agnostic is a person who says, there's just no way we can really know, right? There's no way we can know. So they take this, what they think is this middle road position. 
Who knows if God exists? Who knows if Jesus is who he claims to be? We don't know. But Jesus is saying you can't take that position because of the point, because his, the, his requirement of us is that we submit ourselves to him as our authority. And by saying, I don't know if you're really my authority, is to essentially say, you're therefore not my authority. You can't say, I don't know if I'm going to submit to you and simultaneously be submitting to him. Therefore, agnostics are in rebellion to God. They are, in, they are refusing the authority of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus rejects them. He says, you have rejected my authority, and so I reject you. Jesus says to them, because you won't answer me, I won't answer you. And that begins three parables that are designed to show us how fully and devastatingly Jesus rejects the people who reject his authority. It ends in the third, or or even in the second parable. Jesus says, if you reject me, he will utterly destroy them. He uses the word, I will grind you into dust. He will pulverize his enemies who reject him. This first major section, I feel like I got muddy, and so what I want to do is summarize this and make sure that we're all on the same page. This first major section, Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees. And the point of this interaction is very simple. It's to show us that if we reject Jesus, he will reject us. The Pharisees rejected Jesus because of his, they didn't believe that he had the authority to do what he said he was going to do. And Jesus says, because you rejected my authority, I'm going to reject you. Because you did not acknowledge me, I am not going to acknowledge you. Because you have thought me as an equal, I am not going to consider you, right, or actually less than an equal, as not having the authority to walk in this temple. I'm not going to consider you as one of me. You are outside. I've rejected you, and I am even going to judge and destroy you for your rejection of me. This is what's happening in this first interchange. The question that comes up from that, is that okay? Okay. Can Jesus reject somebody for not accepting him? Is, is, does it come across like a, maybe like a spoiled schoolboy who says, if you won't let me play your game, I'm taking my ball and going home? Or is there something a little bit more profound that's going on? What, what's going on that gives Jesus the right to reject them for them rejecting him? And that's the purpose of the three parables that are about to follow. We're just going to look at the first one. In the first one, Jesus is going to say, when you reject me, you are proving first that your words are empty and that you're a hypocrite. If you reject Jesus, your words are empty, you're a hypocrite, And in essence, you are rejecting God. Let's just walk through the parable. The parable starts on page, or on verse 28. Jesus says, what do you think? 
A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, My son, go, work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. Yet later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of these two did the father's will? The first, they said. Jesus said to them, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, you didn't even change your minds and then believe him. In this parable, there's a man who represents God, represents the Father, and there's two sons. In this first, son, this first child we find out seems to represent these tax collectors and prostitutes. God says, I want you to do my will. I want you to do something for me. And they say, absolutely no way, we're not doing it. But at the end, they change their mind. They relent and they do it. The second message, or the, the second son, represents these chief priests, these religious leaders. And he says to them, I want you to do something. And they say, like you would expect religious leaders to do, we'll do anything you say, God, we're there. We're your man. We're the religious leaders. They're on board. But they never do it. They never do what they've committed themselves to do. And so Jesus asked them, in reality, who's done the Father's will? Who's right with God? And these chief priests and elders, they know. The Jewish leaders say, obviously, it's the son who actually does the will of God. Even if he rejects it at first, the fact that at the end he changes and accepts the authority of Jesus and submits to that authority, that's the one that is right. And the point of this message, the point of this parable, is to simply tell us words are cheap. Right? Words are cheap. You can say, I will do the will of God and never do it. And if your words are empty and hollow, you say you will do the will of God and you never do it, then you are not justified before God. That's the problem with the Pharisees, the chief, I'm sorry, the chief priests and the elders. They say, we love you, God. But when the rubber meets the road, they don't. They reject what he's asking them to do. Now, that's the weird thing in this story. How in the world can we make sense of the idea that religious professionals have rejected what God has asked and there are tax collectors and prostitutes that are doing what God has asked? What is God asking that they're not doing? And Jesus answers that. He says, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't receive him. You didn't believe him. So the thing that John is asking or telling them, is the thing that God is asking. God is asking them to do what John said. So now we have to go back and say, what, did, what was John's message? We have to go all the way back to, to Matthew 4, where we start reading about who is this John the Baptist guy and what did he say? And his message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a two-part message. God's message to these people was simple. One is repent. Recognize that you are a sinner and turn away from that sin. And you do that because you are preparing yourself to submit to this king. 
The king is coming. I want you to turn from your sin and submit to the king. Jesus says, you make a show of saying, I'll do everything you want, God. We'll make a living and a career out of performing in church. I will speak, I will do sacrifices, I will play music, I'll do whatever it is in the church, I'll make my career of this. But Jesus says, that's not what John's message was. It was repent and submit to the king. And those are precisely the two places where these Pharisees fail. They don't repent. Why? Because they don't think they have anything to repent from. They're sinless. In their minds, they've kept the law. And that leads into the reason why they never accept the king. Why wouldn't you accept the king? Is because you don't need a king. Right? Why, why would people even want a king to begin with? It's because they realize they can't run their lives as well as they would like. And so they've given authority over to someone else to run their lives for them. Right? That's why we have a king. But a person who believes I'm running my life just fine doesn't need someone to tell them how to run their life. Right? A person who thinks I got it under control doesn't want a king. They want to re- retain uh, autonomy. They want to re- retain control of their life. And so the Pharisees neither accept, or neither accept their sinfulness and repent, nor do they accept Jesus as their king and give him the authority that he's due. And so the central command that God has given them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they disobey completely. There's something encouraging that happens here, but I want to just pause and make sure that we've wrapped our head around the discouraging fact. The discouraging fact is that there are religious professionals, people in church every single day of their lives, who've made their career about religion, who are unwilling to recognize sin in their lives and unwilling to bow their knee before the Christ who came not only to save them, but to order their entire lives. There are people who will say, I love God, and I will make my career about honoring him in some way, but they will never recognize their own sinfulness, nor will they recognize their need to give control of their life over completely to the one who came to save them. If that can be true, of religious professionals, that can be true of every single one of us in this room, right? If a pastor can make this problem, make this error, so can a person who attends church on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. If you are the person who's like these Pharisees, you are like them because you do not recognize your sinfulness and you do not recognize your need to bow to the authority of Christ. Jesus, that's what it looks like to reject me. You reject me when you say, I've done fine. I've got it covered. I have nothing to repent of. And you reject Christ when you say, I don't need someone to tell me what to do. I don't need someone to tell me how to live my life. That's how you reject Christ. And that's when Christ rejects you. And this picture gets more bleak as Jesus continues his parables because he's going to tell us those are the people that he will judge. He, he literally says, I will pulverize them into dust. That's a scary place to be. 
But there is some hope in this passage. Because there are some people who don't get pulverized. And they are, in all honesty, the people you would least expect. The people who don't get pulverized are tax collectors and prostitutes. Right? Those are the people that you would expect to be pulverized by the wrath of God. But it's tax collectors and prostitutes who Jesus says, they will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they did hear John's message and they did believe. They did admit, I'm a tax collector and prostitute. I have to repent and I need a king. One of my favorite lines as I was studying this, it was a, a quote from, another quote from J.C. Ryle. And he was reflecting on this passage. He said this. He said, let it be a settled principle in our Christianity that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely willing to receive penitent sinners. Penitent just means repentant, sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to bow to, to God. He says, let us take courage ourselves. If we have been great sinners hitherto, only let us repent and believe in Christ. And there is hope. Let us encourage others to repent. Let us hold the door wide open to the very chief of sinners. Never will that word fail. And the word he's talking about is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The bad news in this story is for the religious professionals. The people who say to God, I'll do what you say and never do it. Who never repent from their sins and never bow their knee to Christ. But the good news in this story are for sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. They're the ones that get into heaven. I think about this in my own life and in your life, I'll apply it first to, to Pastor Johnny. If you're standing before God and he asks, why should I let you in? To say, I was a professional Christian. I was a pastor all my life. That will hold no bearing to him. If you say to him, I was a frat boy who was on a path to destruction, but repented of that destruction and bowed my knee to Christ, then you're in. For me, being a pastor has no bearing, has no offer of eternal life. But recognizing that when I was in college, I was confronted by someone as a self-righteous hypocrite. I recognized the truthfulness of that, repented, and asked no longer to be my own righteousness, but to accept the righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus said, that's why people like you, sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, self-righteous people, you can get in. You can get in not on your own merit, but by repenting of your sin and bowing your knee to Christ. Let me try to back up and go through this with a little bit of application, through the whole point of what we've seen here. Uh, the, the first thing I want to point out is that there are probably people in this room who are just like the scribes and chief priests who interacted with Jesus. 
that you have spent your life in religious interaction and have never been willing to commit. Never been willing to say, Jesus is my authority. Nor have you necessarily said, Jesus is not my authority. But by default, to fail to commit is a commitment in and of itself. So my question for you right now is, can you think of a time where you said in your heart to God, I commit, I believe your authority. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe my need to repent, and I believe that your righteousness will, will cover me. Have you committed yourself? If you can never think of a time, make tonight that time. The, second par- the, the first parable, it led us into an, another way of thinking about that. That there's people who have long since made a commitment. There was a time that you can remember, I walked down this aisle when I was eight years old or 15 or 83. I said something long ago with my mouth, and I have never since done what I said I would do. Right? So there's some of us in this room who have never made a commitment, but there's some who have made a commitment and never backed that up with actually bowing, repenting and bowing our knee in submission to Jesus. You've come to church all your life without harboring sins, without releasing those, repenting of those, walking away from them. And tonight, you need to recognize, I don't want to be that second son. I would much rather be the son who did not do what he was supposed to and then realized and repent and walked away. There's a, there's a third group of us, and I think, I think many of you are at this place where you have repented and you have tried to bow your knee. And at this point, I think an appropriate response to this passage is one of thanksgiving. It's one of recognizing that God has not saved you because of your religious performance or abilities or accomplishments in any way. In fact, the people who met Jesus with their religious performance on their sleeves, they end up being rejected. What God saved were the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And you, if you are like them, can be saved. Which is a cause for an incredible amount of rejoicing that God would save me, even me, in spite of the fact that I was a self-righteous hypocrite or a frat boy or a tax collector, or a prostitute, or whatever you consider yourself to be, the sin that were controlling you, that God can save you tonight and has saved you. And what amazing grace to respond and and just to say thank you. So if the music team would like to come up, I would like to close us in prayer, but also invite you to begin to respond in your hearts now. One, to confess your sins and repent to turn away from having made a confession long ago, but never living in a way that reflects that confession. Or maybe to respond by giving thanks that God would save a wretch like you and me. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And I pray that your spirit will move in our hearts now as we reflect on your words. Pray that you will show us areas of sin that we have not repented and not walked away from. 
I pray that you will show us uh, areas of our life that we have not given unto your, under your authority. And I pray that you will show us places where we just have not understood the extent of your mercy and love and that you will overwhelm us with thankfulness for your great, great love to us. I pray this in your name. Amen. As they say,